It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kathy Diamond, and I am back once again this afternoon on behalf of the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Library, which is now open once again for in-person visits. First time since the pandemic began. This is wonderful news. No appointment necessary, and, um, and we're all very pleased about this. The book that I will be t- telling you about today is Sebastian Falk's latest novel, which was published in 2018, called Paris Echo. I'd like to tell you a little bit first about this well-respected British writer whose work some of you may be familiar with over the years. Sebastian Falk was born in 1953 and was educated at Wellington College and Emmanuel College in Cambridge. He was the first literary editor of The Independent and became deputy editor of The Independent on Sunday. These are both British publications before leaving in 1991 to concentrate on writing. He has been a columnist for The Guardian and The Evening Standard. He continues to contribute articles and reviews to a number of newspapers and magazines as well He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. His first novel, which was called A Trick of the Light, was published in 1984. His other novels include The Girl at the Lion d'Or in 1989, which was set in France between the First and Second World Wars. He's also the author of the best-selling Bird Song, which was published in 1993, which tells the story of a young Englishman called Stephen Raceford and his harrowing experiences fighting in northern France during the First World War. The main narrative of that story is intercut with scenes from the life of Stephen's granddaughter, a young woman called Elizabeth, who was living in the 1970s and traveled to France to discover more about her grandfather's life. I'm mentioning this because these themes and this style of writing and this back and forth shares similarities with the book that I will be talking about today with his most recent novel, Paris Echo. His fifth novel, Charlotte Grey, completes the loose trilogy of books about France with an account of the adventures of a young Englishwoman, the eponymous Charlotte Grey, who becomes involved with the French resistance during the Second World War, something which also appears in today's book, Paris Echo. There was a film adaptation made of Charlotte Grey. I don't know if any of you will remember that. Kate Blanchett starred in the main role, and that was back, though, in 2002. His next novel was called On Dolphin Street, and it was a love story set against the backdrop of the Cold War. In 2008, he published a book called Devil May Care, a James Bond novel commissioned by Ian Fleming Publications Limited to mark the centennial of Fleming's birth. 
Among his later works were were a biography, um, and there was something called Jeeves and the Wedding Bells, as well as Where My Heart Used to Beat in 2015, which was the predecessor to today's book, Paris Echo. Okay, so enough about his 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 background and his previous works. He lives in London currently with his wife and, um, well, he has three children. I don't know if he's still living with his children. Probably not. They would be too old for that by now. Now to Paris Echo, Mr. Fox's most recent novel. I just would like to read you the three quotes that the author uses as his epigraph at the beginning of the book. And these are always good to read because they give you an idea of what, or they should give you an idea of what the themes of the book are going to be about. So there are three quotes. The first one is by Victor Hugo in his book, L'Homme qui rit. I won't read it to you in French, I'll read it to you in the English translation. What is history? An echo of the past in the future. A shadow of the future on the past. Quote from Victor Hugo. Note the title of today's book is Paris Echo. The second quote is a quote from Franz Kafka's diaries, and it reads as follows. The metro, meaning the French, the Paris subway system, the metro furnishes the best opportunity for the foreigner to imagine that he has understood the essence of Paris. This is Kafka writing about Paris in his diaries. And the final little quote, is from Charles Baudelaire, from his famously Fleur du Mal. Again, I won't read it to you in the French, but the English translation reads as follows. Teeming city, your streets filled with dreams, where daylight ghosts confront the passers-by. And again, all of these three together will give you a very good idea of what is going to be in this book an echo of history. What is history? As Victor Hugo writes, it is an echo of the past in the future, a shadow of the future on the past. Then there's the Paris Metro, which is very, plays an important role in the book. And then this idea of the city where the streets are filled with dreams, as Baudelaire writes, where daylight ghosts confront the passers-by, because he puts this into his book as well. This is a book in which at some, t- at some point you read and you think, wait a minute, are these real characters? Are they ghosts? Are we reading magical realism? But, but in the epigraphs, in these little bits, quotes at the beginning of the book, he gives you a taste of what he's going to write about. And he opens the book with the one of the narrators of the of the story writing and he and this is how the story opens the main whoever is talking says that i was using the bathroom when i caught sight of myself in the mirror my face looked so beautiful that i turned to look more closely not realizing that i was spraying the tiles around the toilet in my hurry It was like someone had drawn a faint shadow between the cheekbones, then put a touch of mascara on my lashes. The eyes had a depth I'd never seen before. I put my head to one side and smiled, then furrowed my brow as though I was being serious, but the eyes stayed the same, twinkling with a kind of humor and experience. This was the face of someone old beyond my years. Imagine. This is this young narrator, this young boy is describing himself 
as 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 a he's as narcissistic as can be. It seems. How could it be? He continues that I had never noticed before just how beautiful I was. Not regular handsome, maybe like an old film star, but not indie blank like a modern one either. More a mix of soul and sexiness with noble bones. This is how this young kid is describing himself. He says, true, I'd smoked a little keef, meaning I guess hash, but only a little, which was all I liked. And I had had a Coke to keep my sugar level up. I felt happy to think that this person, the person he sees in the mirror, was me. No harm could come to someone who looked like that. The ways of peace and righteousness were ours, not to mention soft-skinned girls and travel to distant places. We stared into one another's eyes for a few more minutes. Then he spoke. He said, you gotta get out, man, you gotta get out. I felt myself nodding in agreement because I had known this anyway for quite a while. There was nothing shocking in what he said. It was more of a relief. Go now. I will any day now. So who is this? This is the narrator, one of the two narrators of the story, this young 19-year-old boy, it turns out, who is talking to himself when he looks at himself, he, he, he notices himself for the first time in the mirror one day, or he's looked at himself before, but he notices and, and remarks on how good looking he is, how beautiful he is. So this is, this is really the Narcissus myth from Greek mythology. Here's the character of Narcissus looking at himself in the mirror. And he, and, and it's like, you read this and you think, oh my gosh. A few pages later, this young narrator is describing his education and his lack of interest. He, then he explains who he is. We find out that he lives in Morocco and he lives, um, and he's, his mother has died when he was nine or 10 years old. Um, when he was 10 years old, he's not sure. Maybe I was nine, maybe I was 10. I wasn't really aware at the time how ill she was. And I went off to school one day telling her that I hoped her cold, which is what he thought she had, would be better. And then he comes home and she is no longer alive. She's died of cancer. Um, and he goes to school. He goes to the American school in Tangier where the lessons were all in English and the girls wore Western clothes and girls are very, very much on his mind and um, education is not so much on his mind. And he tells us about his lack of interest. He says he was bored. Who cares about history? What's the point of remembering stuff that happened before you were born? And this, of course, is a main theme of the book. We hadn't been there, he continues, and neither had our teachers nor anyone else in the world at that time. So we couldn't remember it. So what we were doing could only be imagining it. And what was the point of that? And then it's as if Sebastian Falks, the author of this novel, sets out to answer the question by telling us this story. In his 2005 novel, Human Traces, he describes, Fox, the author, describes a character watching passengers disembarking from a train and wondering, what fate, what loops of time or circumstance decree that I stand here? Could it be, this character muses in that book, that other times and lives are separated from ours only by the dimmest veil through which an awareness more developed, more evolved than mine 
could reach out. And this existential question and the longing to commune with distant lives, with lives of people in the past, is a perennial theme in Mr. Fox's fiction. Time and time again, in Charlotte Gray, in Birdsong, in other of his stories, and now in Paris Echo, the novelist lifts this dimmest veil to allow his characters fleeting access to the vanished past and its victims. Just as time and time again, he has trains carrying the dispossessed, lunatics to incarceration, soldiers to the trenches, Jews to the death camps. This is what he writes about in his stories. And in this story, as well, immigrants to remote enclaves. Line 13 on the Paris Metro was the line of despair. Our North Amer- our North African teenage narrator Tariq learns once he has landed in Paris. From Châtillon Montrouge in the south to the souks of Saint-Denis beyond the northern city limits. The trains on this line had no drivers, but the platforms had doors to stop you from throwing yourself onto the track. Tariq Zafar, 19 years old and narcissistic as an only a 19-year-old boy could ever be, has finally fled Morocco. He did what he said he was going to do in the first pages of the story for France, hoping to find not only adventure, but also, despite his telling us that he has no need or no interest in history, also he is looking for traces of his deceased mother's past. Like so many before him, he alights in the shabby outskirts of the City of Light. Saint Denis, he tells us, looked like it was home to the people they did not want inside the city walls. They all looked wretched. They didn't come from the good places of Africa or the Middle East, anywhere you'd actually want to visit, but from the bits that had been put on the map by famine and beheadings. But Tariq is optimistic. He's 19 years old and he has arrived where he's been wanting to go. Our other narrative voice, Hannah, she too has landed in Paris, though in a prettier neighborhood and with heavier baggage. Scarred by a youthful love affair with a Russian playwright, no less, the 31-year-old American historian has returned to Paris where 10 years earlier she was miserable misery, as she tells us, being her métier. This time she is here to research the lives of French women under the Nazi occupation and contribute her research to a book. She is earnest and intense. Hannah sees herself on a mission, a mission to redeem the lives of dead strangers, as she tells us. But she finds herself first giving shelter to a living one. And who's this living one? This is none other than Tariq, who has the two of them meet in the story 
and she offers him shelter, which might sound a little bit um, unsafe and impulsive for a 31-year-old, especially one who doesn't seem to be of that kind of character, but okay, it's fiction, and Hannah is also at this point trying to fend off loneliness. So the setup might seem contrived, but the tentative friendship seems believable. These two lives of Tariq and Hannah glance off each other as lives do. And Mr. Fox, the author, is restrained in his depiction of the unlikely alliance. He is also skillful at folding layers of meaning and suspense into a deceptively plain narrative. In alternating chapters and with lyrical precision, he reveals Paris and its wartime past through two radically different lenses. You have Hannah's, the academic, the 31-year-old American, who knows, it seems, everything that she needs or wants to know about her family's past history. She is intellectually focused. And then you have young Tariq, our 19-year-old narcissist, always hungry, always looking for experiences with women, and he has a wide open lens as, a, as opposed to Hannah's intellectually focused one. And the effect of these two lenses is often ironic, pleasantly ironic to us, the reader. When Hannah, for instance, comments about her young lodger, about Tariq, she says, boy, is he ignorant, he knows nothing. But she cannot know that her lodger, meanwhile, has come into living contact with the history that she strives so hard to reanimate. It begins with a woman on the metro. As she went past me, Tariq reports of a captivating stranger, she tossed her ticket down on the steps and I noticed she had folded it several times into the shape of a V. Then she was gone. The paper V, we later learn, was a symbol of the French resistance and the woman is both, both ghost and witness. And again, here is where we are not sure who's real and who's not real. Is this really a person, a character that Tariq, is, is she a real woman? Or is this a bit of magical realism, one of the ghosts that are woven into the story? He follows her home and he goes into her apartment. He sits in a chair and he listens to her. And she starts to tell him about the history of the city that they are in. And she starts to describe the deportation of the Jews in Paris, that famous roundup that we know from so many other either his, history books or historical novels over the last years. And she tells him, they took them to a camp in the north of the city. And remember, Tariq is 19 years old. He never wanted to study history. He has no idea. They took them to a place called Grancy, she tells Tariq during their first conversation. And from there, they put them, the Jews, on trains that took them to the east, to Poland, where they could more easily be killed. 
And so he, here is Tariq, who is not never thought he would be interested in this. And this is the subject that Hannah, his landlady of sorts, this is her area. But yet, here sits Tariq in this strange woman's room. Again, we're not sure if this is a ghostly conversation or a real conversation, but he's learning about what happened to the Jews of Paris when they were rounded up. And so he listens in an intimate, eerily tangible netherworld. Light came from a bulb under a ceramic shade hung on a flex from the ceiling and from a dim lamp by the bed. All is as real in these moments as the study in Hannah's apartment where other voices, those from the tapes, the archival recordings that Hannah is listening to day in, day out, trying to get the information that she needs for the book that she is writing. And she is trying from these recordings, and these are real record, real. I mean, it's, it's a novel, but recordings of women talking about their experiences during the Second World War. This is so while Tariq is sitting and listening to this ghost slash young woman telling him about what happened to the Jews and how they were rounded up. Hannah is listening to tape recordings of voices of women who lived in Paris during that time. And these voices conjure up the daily iniquity of the Nazi of the German occupation. One vicious old woman recalls in, on one of these tapes, I didn't even know you got money for reporting an enemy of the state, vicious old Mathilde recalls. Next time I denounced somebody, I made sure I got the full amount. One recording. Another one. There's a young woman by the name of Juliette wrongfully denounced for collaboration. And she concludes on one of the tapes that Hannah is listening to decades later. I feel only sorrow that my one life turned out like this. My youth came at the wrong time. I was never again that girl. These women's testimony, which are artfully grafted onto the narrative of our novel, recall the novels of other writers, particularly those of Hans Falada. They are so intimate and immediate in their force. And yet, Sebastian Fox even as he immerses us readers in the past, keeps our attention fixed on the present, where Hannah finally recognizes and rekindles a, a, a love, a, like a love affair, well, it wasn't a love affair before, that has been there all along. And this is another thread of the story, not the main thread, but it's there. There's this romance that is elegantly unspooled over the course of the story, providing a bit of um, optimism and hope in Hannah's life. One of the most memorable characters in the book, I found, is an older man Tariq meets in the metro because Tariq spends his days while well, he gets a job in a fast food chicken restaurant owned by two Middle Eastern guys. No, sorry, two, two uh, North African guys give him a job. And he also gets to eat because, as he tells us, he's always hungry. One of the troubles of being 19 years old. 
And but when he, whenever he has any free time, he spends it on the metro because, as as uh, Franz Kafka tells us tells us at the beginning, the metro furnishes furnishes the best opportunity for the foreigner to imagine. As he says here, imagine this is Kafka that he has understood the essence of Paris. So Tariq rides the metro back and forth, and one of the characters he meets there is an older man who likes to put on perform puppet shows on different metro cars, on this different metro lines. And he calls himself Victor Hugo. He's not, but this is the name he gives himself. And he sets up, as he sets up these impromptu puppet shows on the subway cars, he talks to Tariq and Tariq meets him a few times during the story. He teaches Tariq. He is one of the characters that also is trying to teach Tariq history and the importance of history and the importance of the place in the past and why it's important to know what happened before a person lived. He also links the history of the Jews during World War II, which is what Hannah is studying, and the later story of the Algerians. Well, the Algerian story did go on from like 1830 when Algeria became a colony of France until the 1960s. But there was a story of the Algerians. There was a massacre in Paris in 1961. And and this Victor Hugo older man, as he walks and talks with our young Tariq, he tells him about this bit of history. And he says to him, and Victor Hugo is a Frenchman, but he's telling him about the Jews and how the Jews were taken away. And, um, and then he tells them about the Algerians. And he says, you know, there were wars. The countries of the Maghreb, the men of Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, people who had once loved us or at least lived alongside us, came to distrust France as much as they despised the other Europeans. And so they decided to remove us. This is Victor Hugo telling Tariq the story of the Algerian revolution against France. And because they were so poor, so beaten, and so spread out, the only flag under which they could come together was the flag of their vanished god. They brought a god into politics, and that was the end for France. After that, there was only massacre, torture, and despair, and the end of our, meaning the French, oriental dream. Victor Hugo was starting to lose me here, Tariq says, but he sounded mournful. He took me by the elbow. See here, he said, this bridge, the Pont Saint-Michel. Look, I looked, I saw tourists. An awful place for your people, said Victor, still holding my arm. The last chance of friendship between our countries ended forever on this spot. It was from this bridge that the police threw the bodies of the Mohammedans, as he calls the Muslims, into the Seine to conceal how they had beaten and killed them. When was this, I said? This is Tariq asking. Let me see, 40 or 50 years ago, quite recently, I calculated splitting the difference. 45 years ago would have made it 1961 when my mother was a child in Paris. Perhaps her father had been one of those involved, but no, he was French or at least French Algerian. Pied Noir, Blackfoot maybe, but white skin. But his wife, my Algerian grandmother, suppose that was the trauma of my mother's childhood. Her own mother, my Algerian granny, as I knew her, was killed, then thrown by riot police into the river. 
It was an infamous day, said Victor Hugo, releasing my arm and looking down into the brown water of the Seine. Hundreds of people were murdered by the police because of the way they looked. The police had been given a free hand by the man in charge, whose name was Papon. They said he could do whatever they liked and he would cover for them. During the war, 20 years before, this Monsieur Papon had been concerned with rounding up the Jews in a bicycling arena. Remember, that's the, that's the Vel d'Iver, Velodrome d'Iver, where all the Jews were rounded up before they were deported to Auschwitz. He was the same one responsible for rounding up the Jews in a cycling arena further down the river to our left. Whence they were displaced, continued Monsieur Victor Hugo, to a place in Upper Silesia known for its manufacture of chemicals and there exterminated by gas poisoning. He was not a good citizen of our French Republic, Monsieur Papon. He had not drunk deep from Pascal or Voltaire, from Racine or Montaigne, or even from my more modest work, right? He calls himself Victor Hugo. He had turned his back on the clear stream of enlightenment and drunk from the politics, sorry, from the puddles of the midden, like a beast. So now he's saying, thinking Tariq, this young kid, I think I knew too much history as I was realizing that history is all around us. And so he teaches Tariq, this Victor, Victor Hugo character, much about the past, and he links the story of the Jews during World War II and the 20 year later story of the Algerians killed in Paris in 1961. So this is Tariq's personal family history linked with what Hannah is studying. Eventually, Tariq decides to leave this city, the one that he had had to come to when we first meet him at the beginning of the story. And he tells us, for the last time, I crossed the Medina, that is the St. Denis Market Square, the black slate roofs and the halal meat, the buried Christian kings of France and the exiles of the Maghreb, the black burqas and the limp tricolore on the town hall. Heading home, and in a final twist in the story, skirting danger, Tariq is one of Mr. Falk's more memorable charmers, and his fiction has a number of charming characters. And Paris Echo, for all its sadness and tragedy, turns out to be one of his most buoyant novels, evenly paced and deftly constructed. The historical, the real, the possible, says Hannah. I knew I needed to cling on hard to those ghostly distinctions. And this is what she thinks as she travels to the site of a French concentration camp to Drancy, where reality briefly dissolves and the horror seeps through. In counterpoint, Tariq, before leaving Paris, he too takes the train to Drancy. But there, he says, I saw three African men sitting on metal benches in the sun. I couldn't get any sense of history at all. There was just the idle present, a radio playing by an open window, some birds singing. But then he closes his eyes and he sees the doomed children kicked along by boots and rifle butts, herded by 
someone in the darkness who took them to a straw mattress on the floor to sleep before they took a train to somewhere they were too tired to imagine. So he too, before he leaves Paris, is able to imagine the history. Much of this novel is concerned with exploration and discovery. Tariq is trying to forge an identity away from Morocco. He's trying to build a more interesting life than the one his father has known. Hannah, the other narrator main character, however, is deeply rooted in the past, listening to the voices of ghosts on her headphones and trying to rekindle a relationship with this man she knew from her student days and eventually they reconnect. There is an element of the surreal in this book. When Tariq believes he sees women from the past haunting the streets and follows them to their homes where he sits and watches them. Perhaps these moments are not as successful as the transcribed narratives that Hannah presents us with, but they do add a pleasantly dreamlike kind of a magical realism element to a novel that is otherwise rooted in reality. But it's the relationship, the interesting relationship between Hannah and Tariq, these two seemingly very different souls, but who turn out to be kind and rather gentle um, in the end, that makes this story such an interesting read. They seem to be able to provide each other with something that they hadn't known that they needed. And one feels by the time the book ends that the effect that they will have on each other's lives will continue long after their sojourn in Paris has come to an end. Thank you very much for listening today and looking forward to meeting you again next month. Have a good month. Thank you for listening to the Coat St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.